following audio is from Crossroads Church in West Ossipee, New Hampshire. For more information about Crossroads Church, you can go to www.crossroadsossipee.com. First, I'd like to read from Psalm 119, 9 through 16. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Let's pray. Father, it's a privilege for us to gather together as a family this morning, to gather around your word, to speak of you freely, to be able to read the words that you have given to us. We pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would guide us in the truth this morning, that we would rightly divide your word together, and that we would know you more, and become more like you as a result of being here this morning. We give you this time for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, I have things on my mind, but I don't remember what they are. <laughs> There's something I want to say, but I don't know what it is. So I'll just keep reading here instead, okay? Um, 66 different books, 40 different authors, three different languages, compiled over the span of 1,500 years, but only one story. That's the story of God and of man. And this is what we call a Bible. This book that we call the Bible, God's Word, the Scriptures, we use lots of different names for it, has only one true author, and that is God Himself. And one true message that God will go to any length to have a relationship with mankind according to His own design. <laughs> The Bible that we read today, that is in the pews and we carry around or have on our bookshelves, is absolutely miraculous and is wholly consistent with the original text of the Scripture. The oldest manuscripts match the modern text in the original languages down to the letter. You remember a movie came out a few years ago, The Da Vinci Code. It says... Uh, we found the, in the Dead Sea Scrolls about Jesus had a wife and, and all blah, blah, blah. Well, that's Hollywood and totally false. What they found in the Dead Sea Scrolls was most of the text of the book called Isaiah. And when they examined the text of the book of Isaiah, they found it consistent to the letter of the manuscript that we read now. It's not written in English. It was written in Hebrew. 
but what we have translated to English, it matched perfectly. That's, that doesn't happen. Like, I can't translate what, uh, you know, I don't get asked to, to relay the order in the McDonald's drive-up window because I can't get it right from the back seat to the front. But God's word has been preserved as a wonderful miracle. It takes, it would take nothing short of a miracle to preserve a text accuracy without modern means of duplication over the lifespan of the Bible. We've had God's holy word for thousands of years, but the printing press we've only had for hundreds of years before it was all written by hand. And if the monks who were transcribing were off by a letter, they didn't just throw it out. They had to burn it. They counted from the middle, like you find the middle letter, and you have to count the number of characters from the beginning to that middle letter. And if you're off by one, no matter if you've been working on it for years, you burn it because it's wrong, because preserving God's word is so important. It's a miracle that exactly what God's word deserves to be preserved because God is the author and preserver of the book. So, with that in mind, we're going to look at 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. May God's blessing be on His Word. So many important thoughts and, and words in these verses that express the nature of God's Word as we have it and His purpose in writing it. These are my, some of my favorite verses right up there with what Craig read this morning. The confession of the Christ is pretty important also. So I want to look at some of these words, some of these very important words. And the first one of those words is the very first word in the verse, all. All Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Why is the word all important? Because it means all. It's a tough translation, I know. The word all is important because the Scripture is one. Like we carry it in a book, right? Um, but there are two testaments in there, right? Old Testament and New Testament, right? Wrong. There's only one. There is one testament. Uh, the word testament isn't even a good word to be used for it. It's old covenant and new covenant. But there is one testament, and that is God's story of redemption. Sorry to trick you. Actually, I'm not sorry. It was fun. Though our Bibles are separated into these two covenants, there isn't, uh, it's not like there's a testament that we need and one that we don't. Right? Well, we have the New Testament. The old one's outdated. We don't, it's, don't need it anymore. Well, the New Testament talks a great deal about the Old Testament and its importance. So we can't forget it. The Old Testament is not merely, uh, fables and old wives' tales and a good moral to the story and, and uh, lots of weird things happening there. 
is designed just like Paul had written earlier in this letter to Timothy. It's designed to make one wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And we've talked about this before. How do you know what sin is? Because you feel bad when you do something? No. You know what sin is because God describes what it is in his word. Right? Paul wrote in Romans, I wouldn't know what coveting was until God says it. And then covetousness exploded in me. I didn't know what it was before. But when God's word reveals what it is, it exposes all the coveting I've been doing all along and not knowing about it. How do you know what sin is? Because God's word defines what it is. Why is that important? Because America wants to describe what sin is. Right? Culture wants to tell us what's sin now and what's not. Well, that's old sin, but it's okay now. It's, it, no. God's word is not to change. Just as God is not to change. Sin is still sin in God's eyes. We don't get to change it because we don't like it. Or maybe we do like it too much. We don't get to change the rules. When we look at the Old Testament, it displays the character of God. It displays God's holiness. It displays his, um, it displays mankind's character as well. Mankind's wickedness. And our need for God to intervene so that we could know salvation. How do you know you need salvation unless you know what sin is? Right? You don't know you're drowning. You just don't recognize it. But the Old Testament shows us very clearly what sin is. And I know that I personally have been guilty of focusing solely on the New Testament. Look, I like Jesus. I like the apostles. I like the church. So let's talk about that stuff and we'll read that part of the Bible. And the old stuff is, yeah, it's important. Uh, yeah, we'll say that, but maybe not to treat it that way. I've, I've wanted to focus on all of those things that we can relate to more closely in the New Testament, but to do so gives an incomplete picture of God the Father. And, and his story of the redemption of mankind. So we must not forsake the words of the Old Testament. Even in a, a sermons, I've been to try to start with the Old Testament passage. That applies to what we're talking about in the New Testament. If you want to read the Old Testament, just one place, one chapter even, about um, the importance of God's word and his law, Psalm 119. It's the whole thing. It's all about um, the importance of God's word. It just so happens to be the longest chapter in the whole Bible. So <laughs> it's pretty important, I think. <laughs> hmm. So first word is all. All scripture is breathed out by God. That's not all holy books forever. This all of this holy book is breathed out by God. That's important to remember. And the second word, important word, is breathed out by God. I don't know about how you are with math, but there's more than one word uh, in English. Good news, it's only one word in Greek. Um, that was more funny in my head. This 
the one one Greek word. You can impress your friends. It's theopneustos. Yeah, theopneustos, right? Hey, guys, I was thinking of theopneustos the other day. Wow, you're really smart. It doesn't matter if you say it dry, just say it with confidence. <laughs> this, you're not, you're not going to believe the, how this word is, really means. This one beautiful Greek word, it means, it means breathed out by God. It is the, <laughs> it's funny, but it's, the, this is the only place that this word exists. In all of scripture is only used here. Theo means good. Neustos, P-N-E-O, you've like breathed out. Breathed out by God. It's a couple of Greek words mashed together to make one. Uh, this word is important because when you think about what I said earlier, this book is made up of 66 different books. It's written down by over 40 different men. It didn't just appear out of heaven like a divine relic. Like once upon a time, Moses sit on a hillside and, and a golden book comes down from heaven. That's not how he worked. That would be easy. We could say this is God's word because it appeared out of nowhere. But that's not how it worked. God's words were given to men. It was given through men who were superintended by the Holy Spirit so that their writings are God's word through man's hands and without error. This is really important. To say God's word is breathed out by God is to recognize that just as God is perfect, so is his word in his original uh, manuscript. It is without error. It is God who breathed the words into those men's hearts. And those men wrote them down. And in some cases, they dictated them to other people to write down, as we know about Paul. This, this again, is a miracle, how God's word was delivered. And it shows the power of God's words. Second Peter 1.21 says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, it's important that we recognize uh, when is a prophet no longer a prophet? It only has to be wrong once. When a prophet says, uh, what's it, Nostradamus, right? You can buy his little books in the grocery store aisle. Nostradamus says that this is the year that whatever is going to happen, it's some terrible thing. When a prophet is wrong one time, you can't count on his word anymore. Like you say... It's like how to how to ruin a, a psychic's uh, career, right? Throw them a surprise party. It's it's the same thing. When a prophet is strong, once I was working on that all week long. When, when a prophet is strong, once you can't count on their word anymore. Now look at God's word. Where is it wrong? Nowhere. None of those prophecies that have, have been given have not been proven true. All right? We know that we can count on God's word because it came from God. 
And also remember when, it's, when Peter says prophecy here, prophecy is not always just telling the future. We're not talking about fortune tellers here. Prophecy is, is, uh, is speaking words from God on God's behalf. This, uh, the, the word is mouthpiece. Um, like a prophet is a mouthpiece on a trumpet. God, God breathes through it and his word come out. Speaking on God's behalf at God's command, God's words to God's people. Uh, some may think this, this, uh, this are too far-fetched, like God could speak in this way, that he speak and, and these things will happen. Well, um, let me demonstrate quickly the power of God's words. Genesis 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now here. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Genesis 1, 6 and 7. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate it. The waters from the waters, and it was so. And God said in Genesis 1, 9, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. This is how God's words work. Genesis 1, 11, And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruits, fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. Are you starting to get the picture? God speak and things happen. God who spoke creation into existence certainly has the power to preserve his word. He certainly has the power to speak his story and speak our story into existence and preserve it for all ages. It is inconceivable that God would give his people a book they could not trust. If God's word has error, what are we doing? If one part of it is wrong, then we can't trust any of it. Now, when you ever have a conversation with somebody who says, Hey, look, I know you believe the Bible and everything. You're a religious person. And that's fine for you. But the Bible is it's got, it's inconsistent. It disagrees with itself. It's got a bunch of stuff in there that's wrong. So what do you say? Two words. Show me. Show me. Countless people have gone to God's word in an effort to prove it wrong. And what happens every time those people come to faith in Christ because God's word is 100% true and accurate. It's trustworthy. It's no coincidence that Satan's first words recorded in Scripture found in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, question the trustworthiness of God's words. It says in Genesis 3, 1, Satan asked Eve, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Or you shall, yeah, did God actually say? This Satan's first recorded words. Right? We're going after the trustworthiness of God's word to his people. Guess what? He has not quit. 
He's been at it for a long time. God's word is 100% true and accurate and trustworthy. Satan has been trying to discredit the word of God from the beginning because he hates God and he hates you. Devil, not just some red-faced, pointy-eared, pitchfork-carrying imp. He is out to destroy you. He hates you. He hates God. He hates Jesus. But praise God that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. Now, as I said before, these verses not only describe the nature of God's word, but also its purpose in the world. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, this is a beauty of scripture. It's not just a collection of, of stories with cute morals like Aesop's fables, right? It's true accounts of actual people who really lived and experienced God's sovereign intervention in their lives so that we who have the privilege of reading about them may be instructed on how to relate to God our Father through faith in Jesus Christ and how to live as a result of that faith. God has given us a wonderful book. Warren Wiersbe said, The scriptures are profitable in what is right, what is not right, how to get right, and how to stay right. Sound like a preacher, doesn't he? Four points right there. That's a long sermon. Four points. Teaching. You look in that verse 16 there. Teaching. It says, teaching what is right. Instruction in correct doctrine. And again, reproof. That's what is not right. Pointing out incorrect doctrine and wrong behavior. Because the beginning of repentance is the knowledge of sin. Everybody likes having their sin pointed out, right? It's our favorite, right? Here's where you're falling short. Oh, thank you very much for pointing that out to me. But if we don't know sin, we can't repent. We can't turn from sin if we're unaware of it. But God's word points it out. And we, we, can, we can point it out to each other. In love, like cheering for the Yankees, point it out, show them they're wrong. All right, so that moves on to correction there, verse 16, how to get right, redirecting wrong behavior, wrong opinions, right, and moving them to right opinions and right behavior, and also training in righteousness, how to stay right. Disciplining, disciplining us as a father disciplines his child. Instructing in godliness and how to do what God requires. What living a life of faith in Jesus Christ looks like. Do we get to make that up on our own? Look, I came to faith in Christ and now this is how I worship him. I appreciate him in this way. By, by carving this statue of him and bowing down to it. And then my, in my imagination, God looks like a little golden calf 
and I'm going to make a, a, a statue of him and worship that. That's what we do. Right? Stories sound familiar? Do you know how... This is one of my favorite... It's just a funny thing. When the Israelites make a golden calf, and while Moses is up on Mount Sinai, and they're the... This is so... This shows how dumb people really are. And I say people as like mankind, not just... They were dumb, and we're so smart, because we can see how dumb they were. We do this all the time. Moses up on the mountain. The mountain is covered with clouds and thunder and lightning and billows of smoke. Like It's not like they didn't know that God was there. I've been at the foot of Mount Sinai. You know, you can see it from the bottom, you know. And the people of Israel down at the bottom say, we don't know what happened to Moses, Aaron. So we're going to, we're going to melt down all our jewelry and we're going to make this golden calf. And this is, this is who brought us out of the land of Egypt. And we're going to worship that and sing songs and dance dances and, and all that sort of foolishness. And that's what they did. While the clouds and smoke and thunder and lightning up on the mountain, they were down at the bottom making a golden cow. And when Moses came down, and saw what had done, what had been done. He's carrying the Ten Commandments, right? Stone tablets where God wrote with his own finger. Here's, here's what holiness really is. Here's who I really am. And Moses freaks out, throws the things down on the ground and breaks them because this is what the people of Israel had done while he's there on the mountain. And he commands them pound the golden calf down to dust and then mixes it with water and makes him drink it. You guys are so dumb, I'm going to make you eat gold cow. Right? It's not steak and potatoes we're talking about here. Drinking gold dust. Right? God cares about how we worship him. We don't get to make it up on our own. He showed us. He's told us. This is how you live for me as a result of your faith in Christ. Not just do whatever you want. He's been very clear. And there is great freedom and wonderful beauty in how he has chosen to have his people live and serve and worship him. I wonder why all you people are here this morning. I was thinking about that this morning. As I'm remembering the first Sunday, like there was a person in every pew. Just one person in every pew. I say, why all these people here this morning? It's not because of me or because of the band. Well, maybe because of the band, but certainly not for me. I'm thinking it's because of freedom. The freedom to worship God as he has described in his word, not according to somebody else's rules or tradition, that we can be who we are before the Lord. We can honor him with our lives just as our lives are. We can sure turn from our sin, and we are all continually doing that, but it's not a matter of pressing everybody down into a mold. The Bible tells us clearly not to do that. Don't be pressed into the world's mold. And here we get to experience the freedom of worshiping Christ according to his word, free from the rules of mankind or the imaginations of men. At least I think so. Not in the notes. Freebie. So what's the purpose 
of the of that instruction of what is right and what is not right, how to get right and how to stay right, what is the purpose of receiving these things? It's that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now there's an important word in there. Ladies, you know what it is, right? Man. Uh, that's a poor translation. It's man, the same word for human beings. It's universal here, men and women. This, this term, man of God, was used to speak of Timothy personally, as well it was used in scripture of Moses and Samuel and Elijah and Elisha and King David. But that's not how Paul is using the term here. It's not a title. Oh, you man of God, do this or do that. Like I said, the word man is the same word used for human being, anthropos. There, you can, there's another one for your friends. It's that the person belonging to God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Warren Wiersbe also said, The word of God furnishes and equips a believer so that they can live a life that pleases God and do the work that God wants them to do. The better we know the word, the better we are able to live and work for God. God's inspired word breathed out by by God in the hands and the heart of a Holy Spirit-indwelled follower of Jesus Christ is all that's needed to do God's word, God's work here on earth. This is a purpose of God's word. So let's not think we can do without it. This is exactly why He gave it to us, to do the work He's given us to do. The Word of God is God's Word to mankind, not just to preachers and pastors and missionaries and priests. We just, there's no special class of servants of God. We are all servants of God as His adopted children through faith in Jesus Christ. Far too many brave souls suffered and died to preserve this Word, to translate this Word so that we can read it in our own language. It's no miracle, no minor miracle that uh, one of my boys will learn about the Reformation in the, at Kingswood High School. <laughs> Whoa, I did not learn about the Reformation in the public school. It's no minor miracle. It's a major miracle. They're talking about Tyndale, right? Who, <laughs> well, maybe not him, but I know about Tyndale and the Reformation, right? Wycliffe, these men who suffered and were persecuted for translating God's word from Latin into a language that people actually could read. Do you know for hundreds of years, people were not allowed to read God's word for themselves? It was translated into Latin, not because everybody spoke Latin, but only a select class of people, priests, Roman Catholic priests, could speak and read Latin. And they used it to control people. We don't understand the benefits that we enjoy of having God's Word that for hundreds of years people didn't have. I'm getting very preachy this morning. <sighs> Amen. Yeah. Far too many people suffered and died to translate God's Word um, 
from a secret private language into the language people could read and understand themselves. Far too many dear saints were persecuted for us to go back to that way of living. We cannot keep God's word separated to a special class of people. If I'm the only person that knows God's word, you guys are in a world of hurt. Right? It is incumbent on the hearers of any sermon to search out the accuracy and genuineness of the message or lesson from the scriptures themselves. You can't, you can't depend solely on your opinion and feelings about the preacher. Say, well, I like him. He wouldn't steer me wrong. He must be right. Oh, really? That's not true at all. We cannot depend on our feelings about a person's character to determine whether or not what they're saying is right. We have to measure it by God's Word. I give you Scripture references all the time, and I don't do that so I look smart. I do that so you can find out if I'm right, because you can go to those verses and say, wait a minute, you, you fortune cookie that one, man. That's not what, uh, that's not what he's talking about at all. Any preacher may be sincere and truly trying their best, but that does not guarantee that they're right. Every message must be tested by God's Word. And the challenge for us, I would challenge you to be like the Ethiopian eunuch. I'll just let that marinate. Good old Ethiopian eunuch. Acts chapter 8, verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go towards the south to a road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come and sit with him. Now, the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. So I say to you, be like the Ethiopian eunuch. What was he doing? He's reading the word himself. And when he got stuck on something he didn't understand, he asked for help. Be like the Ethiopian eunuch. 
Read the word yourself. Is it all crystal clear and easy to understand? No. Would you like some passages? I can give you some references. You can look up scriptures. I don't get. I don't understand. What are you talking about here? Linda and I were just talking about one this past week. And I won't confuse you with it now, but I'll tell you about it later if you want. Read the scripture yourself, and if you get stuck, ask for help. It's a good pattern. To get God's word into our hearts takes devotion. That's why we, that's why we call devotions devotions. Because it takes devotion, oddly enough. It takes the secret ingredient. What's the secret ingredient? Effort. That's a devotion. It takes effort. We have to do the work of getting God's word into our hearts. That doesn't mean put it under your pillow while you're sleeping so it can creep up in there or just keeping a coffee on your coffee, a copy on your coffee table so your guests come over and see how spiritual you are. It's not a lucky rabbit's foot. It's not just a leather bound fancy book. It is God's words to us. In order to get us inside, get them inside of us, they have to go through our eyeballs and in through our ears. If we're going to mature as disciples of Jesus Christ, we must be devoted to God's Word. And we ought to take to heart John Wesley's great word about the Bible. I am a creature of a day. I am a spirit come from God and returning to God. And I want to know one thing, the way to heaven. God himself has condescended to teach me in this way. He has written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book. At any price, give me the book of God. Let me be a man of one book. Amen? Amen. Let us be people of God's book that we might know God's son. We might know God's forgiveness. We might know God's life for us here on this earth and what God's life for us will be in the life to come. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your book. May our lives echo the prayer of John Wesley. Let us be people of the book. At any price, give us the book of God. We know, Lord, many of us own many copies of this book, and we confess to you that we leave it unread. We let your scriptures go unsearched. Father, forgive us, but also empower us to search out your word. (coughs) Inspire us to pick it up and help us to understand what it is that we read. Your Holy Spirit is a great translator. Father, may we not worship the book itself, but worship the one to whom the book points, to the Lord Jesus Christ. May we all have faith in your Son. May we all repent of our sin and put our trust in you, for you paid the penalty for our sin on the cross and rose again for our justification that we would be put right before you. We thank you that the Christian life does not end there. It only begins. And your word shows us that path. 
May we be diligent in searching it out so that we would know how to live lives that give you glory, that are pleasing in your sight. For that's our desire this morning. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would like to participate in the mission of Crossroads Church through financial support, checks can be mailed to Crossroads Church, Post Office Box 576, West Ossipee, New Hampshire, 03890.